Sunil Vidami opens your gateway to the brave new world of work on The Next Shift. The radio show that explores the exhilarating, the innovative and the unpredictable in the rapidly evolving world of work. Every week, we delve into the uncharted territories of groundbreaking technology, innovation and mind-bending trends that are upending the way we work, live and play. Prepare for a captivating expedition to the zenith of human potential as we intelligently examine the challenges, opportunities and potential pitfalls that lie ahead. From the rise of automation and artificial intelligence, remote working and the emergence of groundbreaking new industries to decentralised workforces and radical income models, the explosion of virtual reality offices and the rise of digital nomads. The next shift empowers you to not only survive, but also thrive in this new era of work. Sunil Vadami opens your gateway to the brave new world of work on The Next Shift. Only on Disrupt Radio. This is The Next Shift with Sunil Vadami on Disrupt Radio. Working from home to hybrid workplaces, finding the right side hustle or meaning in what you do, how to work with AI before it takes your job. Work is changing faster every day and the future of work is already here. How do you navigate office politics via Zoom? How important is diversity when everyone's working from home? And how can you manage a bad boss or that Gen Z intern? The Next Shift with Sunil Badami. We challenge and inspire you to adapt, evolve and become an unstoppable force. I'm Sunil Badami. I've had more jobs than I've had haircuts, including as a journalist, broadcaster, academic and researcher specialising in the future of work. And together we'll explore the future of work today and how you can shift up to the next level, wherever you work, whatever you do. Welcome to The Next Shift on Disrupt Radio. Do you ever wake up in the middle of the night, suddenly struck by everything you've got to do in the morning? For me, it's either that or my 49-year-old bladder. I always feel like I've got a million things to do and no time to do it. And when people ask me how I'm going, the phrases headless chook or blue-assed fly come to mind. Like many of us, I guess I'm what you'd call a member of the sandwich generation, caught between caring for elderly parents, raising children and doing more and more at work just to keep up. Sometimes I feel as if I'm running to stand still. So with everything we've got to get done yesterday, what are some tips and tricks to get stuff done, not only more quickly but more efficiently and effectively? If there's one thing you have to do today, make it this... So, with everything we've got to get done yesterday, what can we do to get stuff done? Not just more quickly, but more efficiently, effectively and proactively. Today, we'll talk to some people who've got some great tips on getting stuff done. So, if there's one thing you have to do today, make it this and stick around. Disrupt Radio. Turning the top end of town upside down. 
Sunil Badami here on The Next Shift on Disrupt Radio. Does your to-do list look like a shopping list? Do you even have a to-do list? Are you finding yourself overwhelmed with all the emails and notifications and voicemails and appointments and bills and suddenly urgent deadlines dropped into your lap? How can you ever get on top of it all before it buries you? You'll remember freelance doyen Monica Davidson of Creative Plus Business, which helps creators and freelancers to manage and build their careers, from our chat about, well, freelancing. How does stopping and pausing help her to get more done more efficiently? And what's the difference between the urgent and important? She's here to tell us all about it. Welcome back, freelance doyen extraordinaire Monica Davidson from Creative Plus Business to the next shift on Disrupt Radio. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You've spent years helping and mentoring and advising countless freelancers on how to get stuff done and manage their freelance careers and juggle different deadlines and projects. So I guess the big question is, how do you juggle, schedule, manage or prioritise different projects? I think it's not just projects, it's also running the business behind the projects. So I think it's always really important when you're freelancing to remember that you've also got a business to run, even if it's just you. And losing sight of that can make the entire juggle more difficult. So, you know, you're not just making coffee, you're also running a cafe and that requires time and attention. I absolutely swear by the Monday morning meeting. I've had a Monday morning meeting with myself since I started freelancing, which was four and a half thousand years ago, and I still do. It doesn't always have to be on a Monday morning, but it, the idea behind the Monday morning meeting is a check-in with yourself at the beginning of your working week, whatever that is, doesn't have to be a Monday. And at that Monday morning meeting, going through all of your deadlines for other people, all of your personal goals that you'd like to achieve for the week, any other little bits of admin or marketing that need to be attended to, and also understanding what your priorities are in terms of the kind of urgent and important matrix. So the urgent and important idea is something is urgent if it is for somebody else, so like a deadline, for example, and something is important if it's for you personally. So going through and going, all right, here are all the things that I have to do for other people, so I'm going to prioritise those things and get them done first. Here are the things that I would like to accomplish for myself and my own business. Those are my second priority. And then mapping it out, taking that time to slow down and make better decisions about how to use your resources, including time and money, in order to help you to get where you want to go. And also thinking as well about how to incorporate well-being into that and figuring out where you can have a nap or go to the beach or knock off early because you've completed everything on your checklist. I think that's all super important. I have had a Monday morning meeting every week like I said, for four and a half thousand years. And I don't actually know how people do it without that kind of check-in. It just would be, that just would be chaos, chaos. I couldn't handle it. So that's what I do. <laughs> Although we've been talking to a few different workplace designers and work designers talking about issues around distraction in offices and in open plan offices. Mm-hmm. So how do you stay focused and avoid distractions when you're juggling multiple projects and not lose momentum or concentration or flow when you've got to switch between the urgent and the important? 
I think that's a really important question that can only be answered if you already understand your relationship to time and to time management. I think one of the biggest mistakes that we've made in terms of thinking about time management and thinking about and talking about priorities and that sort of thing is that we've totally ignored the subject relation, subjective relationship that people have with time. Subjective in that every different individual human has an entirely different relationship with time. It's not the same for everybody. There are different cultural ways in which people interpret and manage time. Time blindness is a feature of a number of different aspects of neurodiversity. So it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. I think the important thing is to pay attention to what's happening around you when you feel really focused and calm and clear-minded and engaged and whatever it is that has created that scenario for you, trying to mimic that in whatever way you can. So I can get very focused very quickly by listening to certain types of music, by lighting certain kinds of candles that have a distinctive scent. I've actually trained myself to fast forward into focused time by listening to Dusty Springfield, actually. And so here in our open plan office, it is routinely known as Dusty Time. Dusty Time means I'm putting on my noise-cancelling headphones and I'm just going to be gone for an hour or two. It is the audio equivalent of closing the door. The time that I find my lintels need the dust need dusting the most right <laughs> or my sock drawer needs reorganizing <laughs> or i have to sort out my junk mail folder is yes. when i'm about to start something really big like a a big project that i know i've got a pressing deadline for mm-hmm. I inexplicably find myself going i've got to do it but i'll just get this stuff done first why oh, I is know that? why you're doing it. It's not inexplicable at all. That You're doing that for a very widely observed psychological reason. What you are doing is building up your confidence in task completion. There is a, a unified approach to that kind of procrastination. We call it procrastination with purpose. People will choose procrastinating tasks prior to having to work on something large and unfocused with no clear deadline and with unclear boundaries, people will tend to choose procrastination methods like clearing out the sock drawer or doing the dishes or cleaning out that folder or whatever it might be. Those activities usually are defined by having some sort of purpose. So there is an outcome that will be achieved during the procrastination period that the task that you have chosen has a very clearly defined beginning, middle and end, like doing the dishes, for example. And the idea is that if the sort of psychological weight of having to do this big, scary, amorphous thing is a bit much, doing a small, specific, achievable thing beforehand helps to build up our confidence. So I often talk to people who tell me that they have to do the dishes before they can get started on their work. They don't really have to have a clean kitchen. What they have to have is a warm-up. It's an intellectual warm-up 
for your brain and for your confidence. Your brain says, oh, I have cleaned my lintels and organized my sock drawer. So now maybe I can write the next chapter of my book. <laughs> You're on the next shift on Disrupt Radio with me, Sunil Badami, getting it done with director and doyen of freelance and creative mentoring consultancy, Creative Plus Business, Monica Davidson. The big question is, Monica, how clean is the work kitchen at Creative Plus Business? It's pretty clean. There's a lot of people who like to procrastinate here and they like to do it with their dishes. So, you know, that's totally fine. There's nothing wrong with the procrastination. It's just when it gets out of hand. I often say to my participants and clients, trying to stop procrastination is like trying to stop breathing. It's just a part of being a human being. It's a universally observed behaviour. So it does have a purpose. And the other really important thing to remember is that why are you procrastinating is really the important question, not what methodology you're choosing, but why are you doing it? If you are procrastinating because the task that you have to complete is boring, a little bit scary, but not too overwhelming, it's a really pretty day outside and you just don't want to, you're going to procrastinate. But you could also be procrastinating because you've agreed to a task that you do not have the capacity to actually deliver you do not have the skills or the ability to make that thing happen and now you're in a full-blown panic attack because you've realized that you can't actually do the thing that you said you were going to do those both look like procrastination but one is very different from the other and it's really up to you to pay attention to the motivation behind the procrastination it could be a serious issue that needs to be worked out or it could just be that you don't want to do your taxes and socks are more fun (laughs) okay but uh, you have that moment where you realize oh shit i can't do it i'm not going to be able to do it i don't Mm -hmm. know how i'm going to do it and i might not even get it done what do you do then to get it done you ask you ask for help you ask for help immediately The longer you wait, the worse it's going to be. So my recommendation would be to have about your person (laughs) in your phone or in your life, people that you can call upon for help. It really does depend on the situation though as well. If it's work that you're doing for a client, you need to tell the client straight away. If it's work that you're doing with collaborators, you need to lean on your collaborators to help you. I think the biggest mistake that you can make in that moment is imagining that not telling anybody and pretending that nothing is happening and ignoring it will make it better. Those three things will always make it worse, a thousand times worse. Stop and ask for help. Overestimating our own capacity is really common and I'm conducting a lot of casual research into why that happens, but it does happen all the time. Yeah, I often all of a sudden realised I've got all of these competing deadlines that I have to all get done, usually in the same period. Yep. And that's where the famine and the feast of time management goes hand in hand with the famine and the feast of money management. But I would also suggest that we all do that for a reason. I, as much as it pains me to admit this, I would rather have a dozen competing deadlines and be working 15 hours a day and mildly freaking out about everything that was happening. I would actually rather that than do exactly the same thing every day for the same person in the same job at the same desk. Oh, yeah. But most people that I meet who are working for themselves after a year or two are doing so for more existentially rewarding reasons. 
Welcome back to The Next Shift. Back with Monica Davidson, Director and Doyen of Freelance and Creative Mentoring Consultancy Creative Plus Business, telling us how she gets stuff done and how you can too. So how do you set realistic expectations and manage client or stakeholder expectations when you're trying to handle and deliver multiple projects simultaneously? There are some times where it's unavoidable for various reasons, but I always make sure that I've got a really clear understanding of my timetable before I get started on anything. You can't always be super sure about that, obviously. I'm always really clear about what I can and can't do. I'm not particularly good at the word no, but I am really good at negotiating with people about expectations. And I think as well, we have to take ownership of the fact that it's really up to us to give clients direction about when things will be ready and when things can be completed. Maybe not when you're first starting out, but after a while, you probably have more experience of delivering that kind of work than anyone who is going to pay you to deliver that kind of work. Most of the time when we get hired to deliver something, it is the first time that the client has ever needed that work completed and it is the 400th time that we've done the job. And I think having a really open, clear communication from the beginning and treating your client as a peer and a partner, not someone that you are enslaved by, I think that's really important. It is a relationship of equals, even if you are an early stage freelancer and they are working for an established company. It is a business to business relationship of two equals. And if they are asking you for anything unreasonable, well, you need to tell them from the beginning. If you have created unrealistic expectations for yourself, that's going to be an expensive learning curve for you. Just don't do it more than once. <laughs> Learn from your mistakes. <laughs> yes. One thing I've learned in my years as a freelancer, and I've been working almost as long as you, Monica, it feels weird to think that I started work last millennium, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, but you're four and a half thousand years old, though. It, it makes it easier. <laughs> you look great. You look great for oh, four you. and a half thousand. Thanks, man. Um, yeah, when I tell people that I started my freelance writing career with a typewriter, they just look at me like, What's that? I am from the prehistoric era, yes. (laughs) One thing I have learned in all my time as a freelancer is under-promise and over-deliver. So if I know that I can do something in, say, two or three weeks, I always tell the client I'll get it to them in a month because if I can get it to them a day earlier than they're expecting, they'll think I'm a genius. But if I get it to them... (laughs) Five minutes later than they were expecting, they'll think I'm an idiot. And under-promising and over-delivering is exactly how I propose to my wife. (laughs) She must be so thrilled. How wonderful for her. (laughs) Yeah, I think another way of thinking about that would be contingency, not for your wife. Although maybe, however long you think it's going to take, build in a contingency Mm. of longer. However much money you think it's going to take, build in a contingency of more expensive. And most of the time these days, and again, having done this for a long time, things don't go over time or over budget because of us. Things go over time and over budget because of external factors that we don't have any control over. So by assuming that those external unforeseen factors are probably going to occur, make room for them beforehand. But also take responsibility for your own capacity and if you can't do a job say no 
again, I no is a really hard word for freelancers because it takes quite a long time to get over the idea that every job will be your last job. But no or not yet can be excellent ways of managing capacity. Thank you so much for showing us how it's done. Creative Plus Business <laughs> Doyen, Monica Davidson. Thanks for being with us on the next shift on Disrupt Radio. Thank you so much for having me. I've always subscribed to the old saying that a messy desk is the sign of a busy person, but then I would say that you don't want to see the state of my desk. Our next guest has done extensive research on what the state of your desk really says about you and why you need to do one thing to help you get everything else on your to-do list done. Our next guest is an internationally renowned academic expert on the future of work and the workplace and the MBA Director and Assistant Professor of Organisational Behaviour at Bond University. You'll remember Dr Libby Sander taking us through the Office of the Future and she's here to tell us how to get things done. Disrupt Radio. Welcome back to The Next Shift, Libby Sander. Hello, Sunil. I tidied up my desk this morning because I knew we would be talking. But we've often been told that a messy desk means a busy person. And I'm super busy and my desk is usually, let's just say it looks super busy too. What effect does clutter have on you psychologically or physiologically? There's actually two sides to this coin and one of them you'll be quite happy about. But in general, for the majority of your job that you need to get done in terms of being organised, being productive, being effective, having a messy desk doesn't help because what it does is signal to our brain that there's chaos here, it's disorganised. And even when you are just looking at piles of paper or things out of the corner of your eye, it's actually cognitively draining. It's making your brain tired. It can make you make worse eating choices. You're more likely to eat junk food when you have a messy environment and you're less likely to exercise and it can even affect your sleep at the end of the day as well. So it's really not a great thing. But Libby, tidying up makes my brain tired too. (laughs) The only thing that a messy desk is good for, and you'll be very happy to hear this, is creativity. Because what happens when we're creative is it actually helps if we're a little bit tired. And also what our brain does is look at this very messy environment and it says things are already off the rails here. There's no rules. I can colour outside the lines. And that's a really good environment for creativity. And there's actually a study that showed that a messy death led directly to a Nobel Prize. So you'll be happy about that. But for everything else, it's not good. So I know it is tiring, but you're best to just push through and clean it up. You see all those kind of pictures of artist studios. And I remember going to see the famous Australian painter Margaret Ollie's studio, which was transposed from her Paddington home up into a into the gallery in the Northern Rivers up in Willembar. And I was like, how did she ever find Cerulean blue or the ochre or that brush? <laughs> but she must have. Okay, what does tidying your desk do for your workflow, apart from making you feel less stressed? So one of the things that's actually quite important is in terms of impression management in your organisation. So if you have a messy desk or if you people assume you're disorganised, they are less likely to see you as a trustworthy colleague and it's also potentially going to affect your research for some and affect your ability to get promoted. So that's one key piece. And the other one is that you, you can generally 
generally find things better. Yes, artists probably can, Margaret could tell you exactly where this surreal hymn blue was. But we spend a lot of time, researchers showing hours a week, looking for documents or things either on our desk or online. And so being organised actually saves you a lot of time, which also then gives you more ability to get the work done. And yeah, physiological stress, cognitive stress, you're probably more likely to choose an Apple 130 show when you come out of a clean environment than a chocolate bar if you come out of a messy environment. So it's going to have a lot of benefits, even though it's a bit annoying to do at the start. So an apple a day keeps the cleaner away or something like that. (laughs) I think it's the other way around. I think if the cleaner comes first, you're more likely to have the apple. Then, yeah, so the study, they actually put people in a messy environment and then on the way out, they offered them an apple or a chocolate bar. And most people chose a chocolate bar and then they put them in a nice clean environment and it was the other way around. People were like, oh, my life's already a mess. My desk is a mess. My day's a mess. I might still just have the junk food. Not so much comfort eating as clutter eating. Yeah, I think it's a thing. You want to make yourself feel better because your life's already so chaotic. Okay, do you know what's... Okay, this is... I have to tell you, this is a thing I do that kind of annoys my wife, but I'm generally a little bit untidy at home. She would say very untidy. (laughs) And I'm happy with stuff on the floor and I'll eventually clean it all up, but I'm not putting stuff away all the time. But when I go to a hotel room, I have to organise everything perfectly so it's all out of sight. And it's the same thing with work. If When I go to work, I like my desk to be completely clean and completely bare, but when I'm at home, it's just piled up around me. What does that say about me? I think what it's saying probably is that you're actually doing that impression management at work or maybe in the hotel for the housekeeping staff quite well because for whatever reason you've decided that it's a good idea to have a clean environment at work but when you get home it's as you said only your wife who's um, getting annoyed about it so you're dealing with that in a different way. It doesn't make me a workplace sociopath does it? I don't think so. I'm not a psychiatrist and I'm probably not the best person to try and decide whether that does or not. But from what I've read about sociopathic leadership in the workplace, yeah, I don't don't know. I don't think so. Mm, Maybe that could be another research project. What your tidy desk is about your workplace sociopathy or otherwise. (laughs) I often find the moment, the best time for me to start tidying up and dusting my lintels right, is when I have to, uh, when I'm on a deadline and I've got a blank screen and I've got to start working and that's the moment. I love tidying up for maybe an hour or so. What's the difference between proactive tidying and procrastination? Yeah, I love this. And actually, you're not alone on this one. Definitely, Sunil, I think PhD students have the tidiest kitchen cupboards of anyone. (laughs) I did too (laughs) for four years. (laughs) So there's two processes around that. It's one is yes, we're procrastinating. But there's other there's other research that shows that it's this process of wanting to get things clear and in order and kind of like the dust literally cleared away from the lentils. And that can be helpful for people to feel like things are organized so they can get into this deep concentrated work. But of course there's always a point where you look at Marie Kondo. Everyone went crazy for that show about change your life. You can be happier, you can all kinds of things can happen. And so I think it's probably a good thing. But if you've still tidy if you've tidied up everything you can find and you're still procrastinating, maybe you need a new job. Maybe you need to get some therapy. Yeah, maybe it's time to look at some other things. Speaking of desktops, I know a lot of people with lots of stuff on their computer desktop. 
And I've actually found, usually because of, say, technological issues where one cloud service doesn't work or won't sync, that I now have multiple documents all over the place. Is there a correlation between the state of my hard drive and the state of my desk or my life in general? Am I still being creative when I've got all that stuff all over the top of my computer desktop? I don't know because it's very hard for things to bump into each other online, which is what happens on the physical desktop and that's what happened with this person with the Nobel Prize, he was he used to put things on his desk and layer brown paper over the top and then create a new layer. And then eventually when it got so bad that he couldn't actually work, he would start to clean it up a bit. So one day he got something out of one of the higher layers and some document from one of the lower layers and put them together and then that is what ended up with this Nobel So what was his Nobel idea. Prize for? Desktop organisation? <laughs> I can't remember exactly what it was for, but no, he put two researchers together that then these two particular papers or, or things that they were. But I don't that doesn't happen online. So I can relate to you though. I have a very clean desk and I hate my desk being messy, but my desktop environment for those reasons you said is quite cluttered and I try and just ignore that by putting a nice screensaver over the top of it. What does your desk look like, Libby? Honestly, how tidy is your desk and how often do you tidy your desk? So at the moment, it still, it depends what we define as tidy. Everything's very organised. <laughs> yes, tell me because then I can tell my wife what, how we've defined tidy. I have a few piles of neatly organised piles of research papers that I'm working on writing up some studies at the moment. But then most of it is open space. I have a Lego bonsai tree. I have some pens. I have a candle because I like that sort of environment. And I've got my Mac computer, which I find aesthetically appealing too. So, but it looks pretty, pretty tidy. There's no, no random things here. Okay. I'm going to tell my wife, these are not piles. They're neatly organised piles. That you need to work on for a project. And that might be quite valid, actually. <laughs> what are your top tips for keeping your desk and your mind tidy? This is actually really important for working, especially people working more at home, because if you move from your desk, most people don't have an office nowadays where they can shut the door. So if you're moving from your workspace into your couch at the end of the day and you can still see those piles of paper, your brain is still working and still attending to that and thinking, we really should have finished that project. We need to go and do that. So it's actually still draining your cognitive resources, even when you're trying to watch uh, Netflix. So... Cleaning up the desk at the end of the day, every day, is a really good thing to do. And writing a list of what you need to do tomorrow because it empties it out of your brain so your brain can switch off and work doesn't spill over into the rest of your life and your evening, which is actually really important for restoration, for reducing stress and to have a good balance between work and life. So I would suggest doing it every day. I hope I don't get grounded if I I don't. You seem quite stressed about this. But look, actually, I remember reading once, and it is very overwhelming for a lot of people, and Marie Kondo says get everything from one category and just put it in your lounge room and do the whole category. And I also find that quite overwhelming, especially when you have children. So just with one surface so it could be when you come inside and you might have a little table where you put keys and things just start with that or your kitchen bench or wash the dishes or just do the bit in front of your keyboard and then work out from there i think if you feel and this is quite common for people to feel overwhelmed by the whole task just do a little bit and then you'll feel quite encouraged and then the next day you might do a bit more and then have an apple and then have an apple instead of a chocolate bar. <laughs> oh, you've sold me, Libby Sander. Thank you so much for joining us again. 
My pleasure. Thanks, Neil. It's been super fun. The average worker is distracted up to four times an hour with emails, alarms, texts, calls and everything else. So how can we work through the distractions and get stuff done? Stick around and find out how that works on the next shift on Disrupt Radio with me, Sunil Badami. And we're back on the next shift on Disrupt Radio. I'm Sunil Badami. Doesn't it feel as if we're constantly being pinged for our attention? According to studies, we're distracted an average of every 12 minutes and it can take us up to 25 minutes to get our concentration back. And that's without throwing social media into the mix. You may remember Alex Light, the Managing Director of Concrete Playground, who gave us his tips on getting the best out of Gen Z. So how does he get anything done with all these distractions? There's been a lot of discussion for pretty much since the internet became widespread about the effect that reading on screens and screens have on our concentration. How do you feel about that, Alex, given that you are the MD of an organisation that is primarily screen-driven? Yeah, look, I think I've recently read a book called Stolen Focus by Johan Hari that talks very much about how attention is disappearing and Sorry, and Alex, I was a little bit distracted there, you were saying? No, that's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> My point exactly, no. But obviously, a very large culprit for this is technology businesses and social media platforms. And, and the point that one of the many points he raises in that is that these platforms are incentivized to try and keep you on them as long as possible to monetize your time with ads. And notifications and push notifications and endless scrolling feeds are really designed to draw you back in over and over again. And success is measured by the amount of time you spend on those platforms. As a result, people have lost the ability to stay focused on something. There's switching costs. There's a real loss of the ability to concentrate for a long time. But I think his point is it's also there's it's not the only factor. There's lots of other factors from a decline in the amount of sleep that the average human gets through to the collapse of long-form reading and books to the fact that no one really just lets their mind wander. We fill every waking moment with watching, listening, reading, consuming some form of media or another as well. I think for me, particularly in a media business that creates content, there is a true contradiction, I guess, a an internal battle, if you will, between creating content to capture people's attention. But ultimately, I can sleep at night because ultimately what, as a business, we're trying to do is get people to go out and experience things as a city guy. We're trying to tell them where to go and what to do. And sure, we are competing with all that content and competing for their attention at the same time. But but I feel like the end goal is virtuous in this instance. You would say that, wouldn't you? Of course. (laughs) So how do you get stuff done? Because you are a managing director, you are running a business, you would have a lot of notifications and emails and phone calls from your staff and from advertisers and from stakeholders and you've got a family and basically you're right in the midst of it. How do you get stuff done in a day? Sure. I would say, before I get into my tools, I think the biggest productivity hack or thing that's allowed me to get stuff done is a lot of self-awareness about how I work. And that has really come with experience. But again, in my early stages of career, I did a few 
there's some great personality tests, like your classic Myers-Briggs psychological personality test. And then there's others that are a bit more adapted to corporate life. So the Gallup Strength Assessment. What's your star sign, Alex? I'm a Capricorn, mate. Oh, yeah. Me too. (laughs) Apparently with a star sign, most likely to get murdered. But then again, you know me. (laughs) Well, yes. (laughs) (laughs) But I just found those tools were so enlightening that I work in a certain way I'm better going away and thinking about problems deeply and coming back with solutions. That level of self-awareness about the way I work, the way I encode information has been incredibly powerful, but also an acknowledgement that not everyone else works the same way is is another part of working in organisations. But then I guess on the daily level, for me, I start every day by looking at my calendar, writing a list of to-dos that I need to do on the day, And then I'll block out time to work on specific things for half an hour and just try and use as much of that hour to do the thing I want to do in that hour. Turn off my notifications, turn my phone over, really try and be focused on what I want to achieve and get in a a state where I'm concentrating. And of course, you get distracted and of course, you can't be too harsh on yourself for beating yourself up. But... That's generally how I try and work. And my other tip is to create deadlines for yourself. Tell someone that you're going to deliver it tomorrow, even if it's due five days later, because creating those deadlines makes stuff happen and get done as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I um, I often find I can work, work, work without any distraction. But when it comes to at the end of the day, because I've been focused so long on doing everything I've got to do, I haven't read a book in ages. I can read long-form essays, but I can't read articles in the New Yorker or Harper's or whatever. But I, when it comes to a book, I just have hit a brick wall. How are you with books? And what's your advice to reading again? I, I can't read books after a day of work. I feel like my brain has just had so much information jammed in it and has processed so much. I can't concentrate for long enough to read books. Mm. So I'm the same as you. What I try and do is I exercise in the mornings. I I get up at six. Half of that is because it makes me feel good and half of that is because my daughter wakes up at ten past six and I know I'll have to get up anyway. So if I don't get out of the house, I'll I'll be up regardless. But one of those mornings I'll take a book to a cafe and instead of exercising, I'll read for an hour and just take that time when my brain is fresh in the morning and I'm able to encode the information and really take a little bit of the time for myself to do that at least once a week. And even a little bit makes me feel like I'm progressing and, and virtuous in that respect. So how do you distinguish first thing in the morning when you go, right, I'm going to get all this stuff done off my checklist between actually addressing that stuff and kind of procrastinating from doing other stuff? Because I often find when I am sit down to my computer in the morning, my inbox needs a lot of tidying up. Look, I think the inbox can always wait <laughs> is my perspective on that. And to be honest, I'm pretty hopeless on the inbox But again, my perspective is if something is urgent, they'll email you again or they'll call you. If it's really urgent, they'll pick up the phone to you. There's a real trap that you can fall into and that's always prioritizing the urgent over the importance. And emails keep coming in. And I think by being reactive to that and too responsive to that, you can often do that at the expense of stuff that's important and actually going to move 
your business, your job, your the specific tasks that you have to do along in a deliberate and meaningful way. So, you know, I think there is, you do need to carve out time to respond to that, but it can't be the first priority that you've got to be looking at every day. Thank you so much for your time, Alex. I will try to get onto that. I promise I'll reply to that email you sent me, I think, last year. Well, maybe I'll bump you again. Thanks, <laughs> Despite technology taking care of so much, you know, automated online payments, synced appointment reminders, AI, everything, doesn't it feel as if we're doing more and more that, than we ever did before and maybe not getting quite as much done as we'd like to in a day? It might be because the boundaries between work and home are increasingly blurred, not only because more and more of us are working from home, but because we're so easily contactable all the time. And there's no doubt that just as technology has made us more available to everyone, it's also distracted us more with constant notifications and demands on our attention. It's something that we're going to have to address whether by turning off notifications or training ourselves to focus on our attention or even trying to do fewer things better. But however we do it, it's something we're going to need to do. And we're done. It's time to clock off this shift. Thanks to Monica Davidson of Creative Business Plus, Alex Light of Concrete Playground and Bond University's Dr Libby Sander for showing us how it's done. You can find out more about what Creative Plus Business does to help freelancers get it done at creativeplusbusiness.com and more of Libby's groundbreaking research at libbysander.com. When you've got it all done and want to play, check out concreteplayground.com for the best things to eat, drink, see and do in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Auckland and Wellington. So what are your tips for getting stuff done? Lists, reminders, string around your finger. What apps do you use to help you stay on top of things? We'd love to hear your tips on our socials on Facebook, Twitter, Insta, and of course, LinkedIn. This is Disrupt Radio, and I'm Sunil Badami. See you next time for the next shift. On Disrupt Radio, you'll hear Megan Flamer and Alan Jones. You have a theory about accelerator programs. Yes, we've been through, well, we've mentored and coached in a few accelerator programs. Just a few. Over the years. <laughs> Whether you're just starting out or figuring out your next stage of growth, the advisory board is here to lend a helping hand. Like, what are the blind spots that we have? What are the things that you just don't know. Megan Flamer and Alan Jones have helped thousands of founders, CEOs and organisations all over the world take their lives and businesses to the next level. How are the startup ecosystems different around the world? The advisory board. If they're a casual employee, their minimum entitlements will be different to somebody that's permanent, for example. Live on DAB+. I have to be prepared to, to take constructive criticism and take it on board and listen to it and, you know, incorporate it. Online and on demand at Disrupt.radio.